The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Great. Um, well, welcome. Uh, at the beginning of April, it turned out to be a beautiful day. I'm Helena Kalinda. I direct the Asia program here at the Luke Foundation, and this is just our little ritual because I'm going to turn the uh, floor over to Jan. Uh, in a minute, but we're always pleased to be able to host the National Committee gatherings and have a particular um, connection to this in uh, the fact that uh, Steve Platt is one of the uh, public intellectual fellows through a program that we're supporting at the National Committee. Uh, so a double pleasure to have you here through that connection and also to hear about your, your book. Thank you. Jan. Thank you, Helena. Um, I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm delighted to welcome all of you here today. Our President, Steve Orland, is very um, sorry that he can't be with us. He's actually a continent away in Morocco (laughs) on a lovely trip with his daughters, which is very nice for him, but he does send his best um, to Steve and to all of you. Um, We are very pleased. As you've just heard, Steve um, has a connection to the National Committee through our Public Intellectuals Program, of which he was part of the second tranche of that program, which is generously funded by the Luce Foundation and the Star Foundation. And the committee has other connections with Steve that go back that that I won't bore you with, but he has been uh, very generous in this book that he has written in thanking the committee and various... um, members of both the Public Intellectuals Program as well as the National Committee. We're very grateful for that. We're not so sure we deserve it, but we do appreciate it. Um, We'd also appreciate it if you would introduce us to your publicist. I know your editor is here. (laughs) She's right there. We're very impressed that this book, which is, I think, sort of trying to be a crossover between an academic book into popular literature, uh, you've done terrifically so far in being able to garner uh, reviews in lots of major media around the United States, book reviews, op-ed pieces that you've written, and actually part of this public intellectuals that Helena and, and mentioned is to have the fellows in the program be, just what the title says, public intellectuals, to stand up and take more ownership of the media and trying to get information and hopefully thoughtful, balanced information about China into popular discourse. And so a book like this and all the attendant publicity that you are getting for it uh, fulfills the goals that we have for the Public Intellectuals Program, so we're very, very pleased about that. I'm, you have Steve's bio, brief bio. He's done lots more things, but you have his brief bio in front of you, so I'm not going to take any more time introducing him. Um, just a word on the book. Um, in one of the many very positive reviews that he's gotten, uh, Jeff Wasserstrom, who also happens to be a, a board <coughs> member of the National Committee, wrote that this is a very gracefully written book, and I would certainly second that. Um, I know that Steve, uh, kudos certainly go to Steve for writing it that way and to his editor who is also in the room for helping on that. Um, It it is really, the word gracefully really struck me when I read Jeff's review of that because it's interesting that you're able to write so gracefully about a period that to me as I read this book (coughs) was profoundly lacking in grace. Um, In fact, I have to give you great um, kudos for keeping not only, for not only being able to gracefully write this, but to keeping your sanity in writing a book about such a long period of time that is so, at least for me, so profoundly disturbing in many, many ways. And that's actually a theme that I'd like to discuss with you when you're finished talking to all of us. And so we, Steve will talk for about 20 <coughs> to 30 minutes, and then we'll open it up for questions from everyone. Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, the sun actually is shining in on there. And all those of you in back, also please feel free. We have at least five or six chairs up here that could, you could get closer and out of the sun. 
Thank you. Is it okay if I do this sitting down, or would you prefer me standing up? I can Whatever you're the room. most comfortable. Okay. You can be a professor and stand up, or you can <laughs> sit back and relax. As, as long as people can see me and hear me and wave if, if you can. Um, thank you for that very nice introduction. Um, and, and the thanks to the National Committee is very substantial and heartfelt and necessary, I think, because um, and before I, I start my talk, um, Participating in the Public Intellectuals Program, it was the first time I'd been part of a group that actually was encouraging academics to, to write for public audiences. Um, it's not something that you get in academia. And one of the things I'd be happy to talk about later on um, after my remarks here is um, going about that sort of professionally, figuring out as a, sort of as a professor writing for the academy how to try to write something that would capture the imagination of people who are not fellow professors or students who have to read what you've written because you're going to examine them on it. Um, so I think for this group, there's no need to go into the basics of the Typing Rebellion. There are people in this room who know more about parts of it than I do, um, and the basic story is probably familiar to most, if not all, of you. So what I'd like to talk about with my, with my brief remarks, I will keep these short, um, is really what I was after in my research uh, when I started on this project, um, what, I was, uh, what I was trying to figure out. Um, somebody asked me earlier on, Anne Lee, uh, around here somewhere. Um, asked me earlier on, why did, you write, why did you write this book? I can't remember anymore how I got started on it. I can't remember exactly, but I, I come up with stories of what the seed was that sparked it. Um, but projects like this, they sort of build their own momentum over time, and then you can't even remember where you began. Um, but two of the biggies in here, um, the things that I was after. First, on the Chinese side. Um, this was, and you may not know that from first glancing at the book, an attempt to try to come to terms with Zhang Guofan, um, the Hunanese general who suppressed the Taiping. Um, he actually doesn't show up until about a third of the way through the book, which is why he may not be taken as the starring character initially. Um, but I wanted to try to understand him better. He is an incredibly controversial figure in modern China. Um, those of you who are not familiar with him, he is the Chinese general from Hunan province who raised a provincial army loyal entirely to him himself um, from his fellow provincials, which ultimately put down the rebellion. And from about the 1890s on was absolutely reviled in China um, for being a Han Chinese who killed uncounted Han Chinese rebels in order to keep the alien Manchus in power. Um, so whereas he was sort of the great hero of the war from the 1890s on, he was a traitor to his race, um, persona non grata. Um, Sun Yat-sen got his start by modeling himself after the Taipings. His friends called him Hong Xiaochuan. Same for Chiang Kai-shek. Things start to get complicated once you get into the 1920s, however. Chiang Kai-shek began by, by admiring the Taiping. Then once he began training military officers, he became fascinated with Zhang Guofan. And ultimately, Chiang Kai-shek modeled himself on Zhang Guofan and actually had his cadets at the Huangpo Military Academy read Zhang Guofan's writings on fighting bandit rebels, namely the communists. Um, Mao Zedong who was born in the same part of Hunan province as Zhang Wafan, grew up admiring him and at one point wrote that Zhang Wafan is the man I admire more than anyone else. Um, but, as you know, he eventually decided to throw in his lot with the memory of the Taiping, and, Hong, and Mao eventually re, reinvented himself as Hong Shouchen, the enemy of, of Zhang Wafan. Um, Zhang pops up here and there. He's a brilliant military strategist, but this pernicious racial issue that he supported the Qing against the, against the Chinese rebels um, comes back in various ways. Um, and really, he was in the PRC, he was absolutely persona non grata up until the 1980s um, when a novel was published by Tang Helming, a three-volume historical novel based on Zhang Guofan's life, um, which propelled him to fame. This is one of the most popular books in modern China. Um, millions of copies of this book were sold leading to sort of a Zhang Wafan fever and a rediscovery of him, not as the suppressor of the Taipings, but as a model of a Confucian gentleman, of a moralist, of somebody who was self-disciplined in a way that was not influenced by Westerners. Um, so, and just, I, 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 
a note about how his legacy continues to be complicated with the, with the Public Intellectuals Program Group. Um, we were in Beijing and we met with the head of the Foreign Affairs University, the dean of the Foreign Affairs University. And somebody asked, why, well, when you look back on China's history, as you train today's diplomats, who are you think, like, what period of China are you really thinking about? Um, what do you want to model them after? And he said, well, the post-Taiping period, Zheng Guofan, Li Hongzhang, um, those are the figures that we admire the most. And he said, well, what about the fact that Zheng Guofan put down the Taiping and they were peasant, peasant rebels? And he said, no, 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 nobody wants to talk about peasant rebellion anymore. Nobody cares about the Taiping. Um, a few days later, we made our way down to Hunan province where we were visiting at the Hunan Provincial Museum um, where it turned out that they had a huge stash of, of, of Zheng Guofan artifacts which were not on display. And we asked them, why don't you mount an exhibit? about Zhang Guofan. He's so popular. Everyone loves him. And the director or the vice director said, he's still a traitor to his race. Um, so they obviously did not feel comfortable celebrating in him that way. So it was a way of trying to understand his loyalties. Um, I was greatly aided in this by the fact that there's a brand new edition of his diaries and letters that came out just a few years ago. Um, a small army of scholars cobbled together a much fuller collection of his family letters, um, things that had been edited out of earlier collections. Um, that really brought him to life um, for me, wading through his diary during the war years, trying to understand his loyalties. Because, I mean, the biggest question I have, uh, had of him was one that many foreigners had at the time when he won the war, um, which is, here he is, he has an army of 120,000 soldiers loyal purely to him, himself. The Qing dynasty no longer has any effective military. They have relied completely on him to prosecute this war. Why did he not then march north to Beijing and make himself emperor? And this was written about at the time. It was rumored that even his own brothers had advised him that he should take over the empire. There was very little left of the Qing dynasty. And I wanted to understand why that had not happened. Why the great general who really led this on his own, um, why did he relinquish power at the end? And going through his diaries, it turned out that he was a deeply, deeply conflicted individual, um, torn between loyalty to his family. Um, his own brothers were generals in his army. Um, his home province had provided the manpower for it. His loyalty to Hunan versus his loyalty to the emperor, which was unquestioned, but then to the bureaucrats in Beijing, whom he disdained. Um, as often as not, he ignored the orders that came to him from Beijing, telling him where to take his troops. Um, and he had very little respect for the people who were actually advising the emperor at the time. Um, and also, I would say that and this is something that took the book in a new direction as I was going through his diaries, that sometimes with Chinese diaries, there are incredible personal revelations that you would not expect somebody necessarily to be putting into print. And I would say as a side note here that Zhang Wafan did not expect his diaries to be published. Yeah, I mean, he said that in letters home. He did not want them to be shared. Um, but points in the war where you can follow him through the campaigns, through his own anxieties, through his own fears, uh, moments when he imagined his own death, moments when he suffered through the deaths of his own brothers or loved ones from back home, and above all, a pervasive sense that he never believed that he would win the war. Um, the greatest military general in modern Chinese history considered him for the most part a failure. And there are several episodes in the course of the war where he believed that everything was over. More than one occasion where he composed a will to send home to his sons. Um, the most poignant of which was when he wrote home to his sons and told them, do not become military men. And you don't need to become officials either. That all you should do is focus on your books. Um, and back to what Jen said earlier in writing about this, it is hard, sort of morally, as a historian, to juggle a figure who is so inspiring in some ways and so deeply troubling in others. This is a man with an enormous amount of blood on his hands. And yet, there's still something deeply sympathetic about his loyalty to the emperor and especially sort of his feelings after. And the, the thing that I left him on was after winning the war, after disbanding his army, after basically giving his entire life over to the empire, um, following his diary in the post-war years, he didn't live much longer after, only until 1872. Um, but there was one point when he wrote home about how, he was, how much he was looking forward to death um, and sort of the, the being enclosed in his coffin, and he wrote home saying, I would be happier there than I am in this world. 
Um, so on the one hand, this was a way of trying to come to terms with this deeply enigmatic, incredibly powerful figure in Chinese history. The other side was the foreign side. Um, foreign assistance to the Qing dynasty in this period is one of the great ironies of the war. Um, the British, with American encouragement, and the French, um, threw, by the end, threw their support fully behind the Qing dynasty in suppressing the Taiping Rebellion. Um, I'll, I'll get it right on the table now. It didn't have anything to do with opium, which has always been the stock explanation. The opium dealers didn't really care either way. Um, the Taiping were buying just as much opium as the Imperials were. Um, the irony is that Zheng Guofan, who was the beneficiary of this foreign aid, uh, was deeply anti-foreign venomously anti-Christian, did not want foreign support for his war. Um, he believed that, that moral virtue was a far more powerful weapon than fancy modern guns. Um, and he thought it was humiliating to have to rely on any assistance from foreign powers. And when it was proposed that mercenary armies from Shanghai be sent up to fight the rebels in Nanjing on more than one occasion, he said, well, if they go up there and they lose, then we're a laughingstock, and there goes the prestige of the dynasty. And if they win, then who knows what they're going to demand. We'll be helpless. On the other side, on the Taiping, from 1860 on, you have a, a prime minister, Hong Rengan, a former preacher, um, and a former assistant to James Legg down in Hong Kong, um, advocating a policy of friendliness towards foreigners, um, teaching the other Taiping kings English, um, and constantly emphasizing shared interests of trade and religion between the foreign powers and the Taiping. Um, demanding that the Taiping not call foreigners barbarians, which is something that they won from the Manchus at gunpoint. Um, he was deeply admiring of Western strengths and advocated modernizing the country, which he believed would receive help from the foreign powers, that they would, they would loan the Taiping steamships, they would help them develop railroads. Um, voluntarily, he tried to offer most of the things that the Manchus were refusing, which had sort of sparked the Second Opium War. Um, low tariffs, free move movement for foreigners within the country. Um, yet in the end, it was Zheng Wafan who benefited from the foreign intervention. And ultimately, it was, it was on that side that they decided to, to intervene. It's something we can talk about more. Um, how did it come to be? That was probably the, most, the, that was the biggest puzzle I was trying to sort out on the foreign side in this book. Um, it was obviously extremely complex, but also very counterintuitive compared to what I had expected to find for why the British would intervene on the side of the Qing dynasty. Incidentally, just moments after burning down the Summer Palace in their own separate war against the Manchus, they turn around and start supporting the Taiping to put down the rebels. Um, a few things that I found that I hadn't expected. Um, one was that there was far more of a romantic support for the Taiping than I had thought would be there. Um, and how they were written about in the West earlier on partly um, for the sake because of religion, because they were initially thought to be Christians, um, but more because they were seen as Chinese liberating themselves from Manchus. And I think that's largely been forgotten um, from the time, that this was seen as a war of national liberation abroad. And there was a deep sympathy involved with that. Um, so the Taipings themselves were, up until about 1860, widely viewed as being on the side of the right. That they were the good Chinese standing up against these venal Tartars who didn't want foreign trade and who hated foreigners. Um, another surprise was that there was far more principle on the side of the British government than I had expected. Um, their neutral policies were carefully enforced up until the U.S. Civil War tipped the balance. Um, I'll come to that in a moment. But for the first decade of the war, the British and the Americans tried to maintain neutrality vis-a-vis um, -vis the civil war in China. Um, there was a regular insistence of the British government that they should stay out of the conflict, even at times that they weren't staying out. They, they, the prime minister would insist in parliament that, of course, we will remain neutral. That's the only moral course of action in China. I hadn't expected them even to be that principled. Um, and in parliament, very legitimate parallels advanced between the U.S. and Chinese civil wars. After the breakout of the U.S. civil war, these are both foreign civil wars. There were clear laws, there were clear, there were clear laws and principles that applied. Um, when belligerent status was granted to the Confederacy, the Times of London immediately announced that the same status should be granted to the Taipings. Um, these were debated as parallel wars, and the morality of intervening, either in the United States or in China, was morally equivalent. 
in the end, they would decide not to intervene in the United States, and they would intervene in China. But in that first year of overlap, when the U.S. Civil War and the Chinese Civil Wars were going simultaneously, um, there was a fairly clear argument advanced that, that the two conflicts should be treated equally by British. That, that's what, that's what mor the morality of international relations dictated. Obviously, that goes out the, war, out the window. Um, and then on that same note, that the mercenaries like Frederick Townsend Ward um, who have been very much lionized by later biographers, were absolutely despised in Shanghai at the time. They were an embarrassment to the foreign community. Um, the foreigners who, who leapt in and got, and got involved early on on the side of the, of the, of the Qing um, were, were viewed as being reckless, um, damaging, and extremely immoral. Um, so as far as the shift going from sort of a romantic vision of the Taiping, um, an, a generalized agreement that the foreign powers should stay out of the conflict. Um, I really find two main forces behind the shift from that to a, a direct intervention on the side of the Qing. One, and for the diplomats in the room, of which I know there are, there are several, um, it was an absolute failure of communication. Um, opening fire on Taipings who came to Shanghai expecting that they would be welcomed by their Christian brethren, finding that the letters that they had sent in advance had not been opened. Um, the British government utterly ignoring the views of diplomats like Thomas Taylor Meadows um, and Robert Forrest, who actually traveled in Taiping territories and wrote quite positive accounts of them that were dismissed. Um, a side note on Thomas Taylor Meadows, um, has anyone heard of him who hasn't read my book? He was a, he was a British consular officer. Um, he, in about 1853 or so, maybe 56, um, wrote a book called The Chinese and the Rebellions. Um, and it was a theory of rebellion in China, of the sort of the natural cycle of rebellion, and that it was politically legitimated when a dynasty was, was poised to fall, that rebels should rise up, um, and that this was how political change happened in China. Um, in, 18, in 1955, John Fairbank, a um, hundred years later, wrote a piece about Thomas Taylor Meadows in which he said, looking back, we can see that not only was he right then, he's right now for 1955. Um, so you can think about that for a moment with the, uh, the acceptance of the revolutionaries. Um, absolute bigotry on the part of Frederick Bruce, the, the sort of accidental British minister who was in charge first in Beijing and then in Shanghai, um, who pretty much hated all Chinese. Um, but because the Qing dynasty had a king after a fashion, um, they were the more civilized party and therefore he viewed them as being the only ones who could possibly rule. Um, and ultimately I would say there's been a lot of talk about the Taiping religion um, and its sort of its, its resonances with Christianity. The religion did a lot more harm than good in the relations with the foreign power. The Taiping actually probably would have been much better off if they had not pretended to be Christians because most of the antagonism towards them on the part of, the, of, of British diplomats was because they had perverted Christianity and they were blasphemers. And those among the consul officers who sent the most vicious reports back about the typing as a plague of locusts destroying everything in their wake, generally it was on religious grounds that they opposed them, not on anything else. Um, the other force was a loss of patience. Um, the British managed to stay neutral for a, for a full decade from the outbreak of the Civil War in the early 1850s all the way up until 1861. They were fully neutral in the Civil War. But then the United States Civil War broke out. Why did this matter? Um, the two markets were deeply connected for them. They bought cotton from the U.S. South, which was processed in Lancashire and then sold in the Far East, sold in India and in China. India was already part of the empire. Um, China was their primary Far Eastern market. And when they lost the cotton from the South due to Lincoln's blockade, the price of cotton products went up to the point that the Chinese stopped buying cotton textiles from them. The trade in Shanghai crashed. Similarly, um, a large amount of the green tea that was being purchased in Shanghai by British traders was being brought to the United States for sale. They lost that market as well. Um, they had to dump their tea stocks on the domestic market in England. The prices of that crashed. Um, and there was a real crisis moment there. This is the midst of the, the, cotton, the, the, the cotton famine. Uh, or the Lancashire cotton famine. Uh, unemployment goes through the roof in Lancashire. Politicians become desperate in England to find some way of opening new markets, some way of salvaging their overseas trade, um, largely due to the destabilization that's been caused by the U.S. Civil War. And ultimately, it's China they lock on to. Um, China, which, as in so many times in its history, has been seen as ha having almost unlimited capacity 
for opening new trade. And if they could simply open more treaty ports, um, and get, if they could simply end this war, then Britain could make its fortunes in China. It wouldn't matter what happened in the United States anymore. Um, to their credit, for that first year of the overlap between the wars, they tried to open relations with the rebels. That was the first stage. Um, they, it didn't work. Um, due to diplomatic miscommunications, due to generalized impatience, they abandoned it very quickly, um, called it a failure, and the drumbeat began sounding for war in China for the sake of British trade there. Um, and just a remarkable turnaround to, to read a, a couple of things from the Times of London. So this is the Times in May of 1861, the summer of the, the, you know, the, the U.S. Civil War has just broken out. Um, the Times writing about China strongly advocates recognizing the belligerent status of the Taipei as, con as contestors in a civil war rather than as being merely rebels, um, giving them an equivalent status to the Confederates in the South. Um, they write, we hope that this de facto sovereign, that's Hong Xiaochuan, who has now been for 10 years enthroned in the southern capital, may at least be acknowledged in his belligerent rights. He holds the great waterway of China in his power, and we must either treat with him or fight him. The first seems easy. The alternative would be madness. So initially, a hope that they could open relations with both sides in the Chinese Civil War, trade with both. Um, it falls apart very quickly. You can read the book to find out why. Um, one year later, the Times calls the typing the thug of China, the desolator of cities, the provider of human carrion to the wild dogs, the pitiless exterminator, the useless butcher. And one month later announces this dragon who interferes between us and our golden apples should be killed. Um, and the rest you know from your history books, um, which is that the Royal Navy directly intervenes in the region around Shanghai. Um, then they, they mount well, a proxy army through a British officer, Charles Gordon, who is fully supported by the Queen um, to raise an army of Chinese troops. They provide direct aid to the Qing government. They commission a fleet of warships, um, one of which is rumored to be the fastest naval vessel on the entire planet. Um, and this is coming both from the British and Americans alike. I think it's important to note the role that Anson Burlingham played in the midst of all of this. Um, uh, uh, Anson Burlingham, who, sends, who, as Abraham Lincoln's ambassador to China, had no power to project in East Asia whatsoever. His country was at civil war. But he did have the ear of the British and French diplomats, um, and he saw a fairly neat analogy between the Qing and the Union um, and the Confederacy and the Taiping, um, which Prince Gong, the regent in China, latches onto um, and gives various concessions to Anson Burlingham, explaining that our country, like yours, has a rebellion amongst its southern subjects, and so we obviously have a common interest here. Um, in any case, with foreign aid, the Taiping were crushed. Um, the, the, the foreigners opened the window and bogged down the, the Taiping armies enough for Zhongguofan to rise from the, from the west um, and the rebellion is ended um, China goes on the Qing dynasty will last until 1912 um, and the irony of this and this is the, the last thing that, that, I'll, that I'll talk about here the irony of that um, is that the foreign support for the Qing sort of goes down in the history books as being the one hopeful break in the, in the dark pattern of the 19th century. That amongst, amongst the opium wars, um, predatory trade policies in the mainland, all of the things that caused such guilt to the British later on, here was the point where the foreigners helped the Chinese government. Frederick Townsend Ward posthumously, um, Charles Chinese Gordon as he came to be known, um, became the great foreign heroes who saved China from its own internal rebellion, um, working together for the common good of the, of the British and the Chinese governments. Um, and that's, that's how I had learned about it. Um, and that's how, I, that's how I had understood it. And so in, in one of the stories that I tell about the spark for this book, and this may, this may very well be the spark for this book, um, was that I totally accidentally came upon an interview um, that Ito Hirabumi had given in 1909. Um, Ito Hirabumi, the four-time prime minister of Japan, the architect of the Meiji reforms, um, he was being interviewed by uh, Valentin Chirol, the uh, British journalist, in 1909, just before the 1911 revolution, just as revolutionary activities are rising up on the Chinese mainland. Um, and, and if you will indulge me, I just want to read his comments to this reporter, um, because this is really what opened up the period for me, to sort of go back and think again about Charles Gordon, about his ever-victorious army led by foreigners. 
Um, as Ido Hirabumi said to Valentin Chirol, quote, the greatest mistake which you Western people, and more especially you English people, made in all your dealings with China was to help the Manchus in putting down the Taiping Rebellion. The history of China shows that, by some fateful dispensation, the appointed term comes sooner or later to all of her successive dynasties. When they have become incapable of performing their proper functions in the state, discontent makes itself irresistibly felt, widespread disturbances occur, and ultimately, whether by rebellion at home or through the instrumentality of an alien conqueror, the ruling house is swept away to make room for some new and more effective occupant of the dragon throne. And this is Ido Hirabumi. There can be very little doubt that the Manchu dynasty had reached the end of its proper tether when the Taiping Rebellion occurred. And by preventing its overthrow, Charles Gordon and his ever-victorious army arrested a normal and healthy process of nature. Nothing that the Manchus have done since then affords the slightest evidence that they deserve to be saved. Rather, the contrary. And when they fall, as fall they must and will, this is 1909 we're talking about, two years before the revolution, as when they fall and will before very long, the upheaval will be all the more violent and all the more protracted for having been so long and unduly postponed. So agree with him or not, this raises the question, did the foreign intervention bring peace back to China? Or did it simply retard by 50 years a process of political reinvention? Um, that perhaps should have happened in the 1860s. It's unanswerable, but the, trying to understand the ramifications of that, are, that's, that's what drew me back into the period to try to reopen its history. That's all I'll say. <laughs> well, that was a wonderful, wonderful overview of what uh, a book that I recommend you all come up here and buy afterwards. Uh, it's a book that, <clears throat> that's wide in scope, um, and yet gets into a lot of detail, especially if you are interested in battle plans. And numbing. Like <laughs> not numbing. It's just, maybe it's not numbing because sometimes the horror of it just jumps up and hits you. And um, As I said, I was, I was quite disturbed by the book as I was reading, not the book, but by the actions that Steve tells so, so vividly, actually. So let me open it up. I would ask that if you have a question, please introduce yourself, tell us who you are, and ask away. You, no, just shifting your place. Okay, well, let me start then and just ask a question about process. I was struck in this by just the enormous amount of material that you had to deal with in putting this together. Um, I know you thank a lot of people for helping you, um, people who were various assistants, and then, of course, people who read it afterwards, and you have a um, lengthy section on bibliography, but that's just selected bibliography, uh, and quite wonderful notes. So how did you just go about doing this? I and mean, how far afield did you have to go to get the material? Mm -hmm. Are his Zhang Guofeng's letters or the various, I mean, you have lots and lots of letters and government documents from both China, the United States, England. Mm -hmm. Did you go off to the Victoria and Albert Museum to get all of these? Did you, are all of the did you do most of the Chinese research in Chinese, and just mm -hmm. how is that all done? Um, that's a that's a great question, and I, the um, I mean the wondrous thing about this is the sheer amount of work that has been done on the Taiping in China, um, and as I was I was talking to Frank Kill ahead of time, um, that research-wise I was standing on the shoulders of giants in writing this book. Um, the the Taiping were crushed absolutely and completely and their records were destroyed um, but there are a handful of handful of scholars in China who devoted their lives to trying to pull together the fragmentary typing documents that still existed um, people like Laura Gong or Jen Yowen um, from what period on? Right? 1950s, 60s, 70s. So before yeah. that nobody was Nobody in China was writing. It's really it, it was in the it was really in the 50s and 60s that the big collections were put together. Um, that the communist communist historians who viewed them as being the antecedents of the communist peasant rebels, um, but they published large collections of, of these. And I was very much aided by by a brand new one that came out on sort of a 10 volume set of 
of diaries. Um, they had discovered new confessions by Hong Rangan, um, the Taiping Prime Minister, who I was writing about, which really allowed me to flesh out his his um, um, his character. For Tsung Wafan, as I said, there was a small army of Chinese scholars who finally culminated a project to do a complete new edition of Tsung Wafan's diaries and family letters and correspondence, which is published in 17 volumes, which I was able to have on my own shelf at home to look through. Um, it, it's absolutely splendid that these kinds of collections are created. Um, so much of the primary source material, there's a 20-something volume set of every every document from the Qing Imperial Archives from their suppression of the Taiping and so year after year after year after year. Um, so there's a, there's a huge amount of work being done in China in order to make these sources available. And they simply weren't being used by Western scholars to any great degree. Um, one of the, again, so I was talking to somebody beforehand that I, the Taiping Rebellion is a huge, huge war. I mean, one of the, the biggest most violent civil war in human history. Here in the United States, we have, you know, we, there's a civil war historian at every university. There is a prize, a prestigious prize every year just for the very best book that year on Abraham Lincoln. Um, there are, you know, there's any number of books on the civil war written every year. Um, but China scholars in the United States tend to work in, in, sort, of, in sort of definitive terms. And a book has been written on the Taiping, and then 10 years later, another book will come along and be written on the Taiping. And I think part of my approach was that I was not trying to write the definitive book on the Taiping for the next 20 years that nobody can touch. It was more that I was trying to get pieces of it that I could, that I could manage and really sink my teeth into. So my focus was overwhelmingly on Tsung Wafan, on Hong Rengan, um, on, on, on the foreigners who are the parliamentary papers are, are, are all available easily. Um, and the travel that I did for it largely had to do with visiting battle sites and visiting sort of to get a sense of the lay of the land, um, the places where things were happening, where things were written, and that, seeing if there were any remnants left over. Um, that, which is a separate topic entirely, was, was, was quite fascinating. And, and what did you find? I know you went to one place where you found some of the place where Zhang Guofang had been in Qiman. But yeah. are other places still around? They are around. They just haven't been preserved. Um, some of them have plaques on them identifying uh, them. Um, in, um, in Anqing, the capital of Anhui province, the, the headquarters of the brave king, Chen Yucheng, um, is there, technically. The whole courtyard complex building that had been his, his palace. And there's a plaque on site to notify you of that. But you go inside and the ceilings are crumbling and it's never been, it was, you know, in the 1960s it was carved up into a little courtyard, into little apartments and there are people sitting around and there's moss growing on the walls. And there's just simply never been any effort made to, to rebuild these places. But it's almost better that way. It is. And at least um, no real estate developers come <laughs> Real estate. But these are the same beams that were hanging there. Right. And they're, are, they, they're are they officially Protected. They're officially they're, they're officially protected. protected, but the people who are living there can continue to live there, right, um, and they and they generally aren't very happy that you come into their house and are poking around looking for typing coins that might be lying on the ground or something like that. Um, but I mean, for a war of this magnitude, there is just the one Nanjing Typing Museum. Um, Hong Xiaochuan's birthplace has been rebuilt back in, yeah, but that was earlier on. Um, you can visit Zheng Guofan's family compound. But compared to, you know, com again, compared to here, we have our own civil war 150 years ago, and we can't stop talking about it, and there's you know, memorials absolutely everywhere you look. Um, in China, it's been so politically contentious what the Taiping represented, how they should be understood, how to commemorate a civil war at all, because one side has to be right and one side has to be wrong. Um, my, my colleague from the PIP program, Toby Meyerfong, who has also been working on the Taiping era, uh, one of the most fascinating questions she got was from a scholar in China saying, uh, from a Taiping scholar in China saying, how is it that in America they can allow monuments to the Confederacy? Why is this allowed? They rebelled against the state and they were crushed. And the, and the question is, in China, how do you commemorate a war when in the current form of Chinese historiography, one side has to be absolutely right and the other side has to be absolutely wrong. Frank, Frank, Either the official historians about the Taiping, um, 
more popular views? Uh, I don't know if there has been a popular press about them the way there are about romantic figures from So, and the university uh, folks who study, or who would study but are not studying. So, has there been a, a real demarcation between the Mao period and presumably Pro, and subsequently what's the score? The, um, yeah, there's, there's a small and very vibrant community of typing scholars in China. They're still very active. Um, what they don't have is the same popular reach that they had in the 1950s and 60s. They're not writing, they're not writing the textbooks. Um, popular reviews are hard to get a gauge on because again, like, there's much more of a diversity now. But um, the movie it gets translated in English as The Warlords, the, the recent huge blockbuster. It won all of the Hong Kong Film Awards. Um, that one is about, uh, is about three men fighting the Taiping. Um, the Taiping are the enemies in that movie and the ones that are... That, and it's sort of these sort of characters um, who are the ones who are who are being celebrated. The um, since 2001, which was really the 150th anniversary of the Jintian uprising, in the beginning, um, there was a there was a CCTV series about the Taiping, um, which was somewhat ambivalent. <laughs> on the one hand, they were sort of great strivers for freedom. On the other hand, they caused a lot of disorder, and the kings were kind of crazy. Um, there's been they, they're not politi- really politically useful now. Um, because rebellion is not politically useful anymore. Um, and the new line, and I was actually very gratified to sort of see this after finding that I had been going that direction with my own study of Hong Rangan um, and sort of the ways in, like, uh, sort of fascinating. Hong Rangan, the, the prime minister of the Taipings from 1860 on, the one who sort of had this vision of China with railroads and banks and insurance companies, all the stuff that he had learned about that he wanted to implement. Um, the Taiping Museum in Nanjing, which is always been, it's always been the central node for typing studies, um, now culminates at the end with an exhibit about Hong Rangan um, and how he anticipated the reforms that would come later. So in, in a certain sense, the, what, they're, what they seem to be hoping will become a politically correct interpretation of the Taiping is that Hong Rangan actually was sort of a forebear of Deng Xiaoping. And the, you know, so the same movement that, you know, and, and they weren't saying this, but if you think about it, I mean, the same communist movement that gave us Mao also gave us Deng. And the Taiping gave us Hong Shou-chen, who was unquestionably a madman, um, but also somebody who they also gave, it also gave us Hong Rangan, who appeared to have been much more pragmatic about things. Yeah. On that before you mentioned the two uh, different opinions in the British press within a fairly short period of time, um, but uh, I haven't read your book yet. That's okay. And that uh, my uh, ears reading about the Taiping was there a shift um, in the approach of the Taiping that would lead to these uh, different perceptions as well um, in terms of did they become bloodier as they went along? Did they, did they were projected by the West or uh, did they lose their vision of reform or was it with Within, you just mentioned the bad man and their reformer. Was it just a schism within the movement? What changed? Did they change? If so, did that have an impact on how they were perceived? That's a great question. Um, it sort of snowballs. Initially, the uh, initially the primary issue is that the Taiping are in Nanjing and the and the foreigners are in Shanghai, um, and so the Taiping initially held off on attacking Shanghai. Which meant that sort of de facto, the foreigners were living amongst Qing loyalists, um, and by the and so the news that they were getting about the interior um, the, it was was all Qing loyalists, uh, Qing loyalist accounts. Um, the the officials in Shanghai were telling the foreigners, if the Taiping come, they're going to destroy absolutely everything. So there's that initially, that and, and there there is quite a bit of criticism at the time um, from some of the more conscientious individuals that the foreign press are simply listening to the Qing loyalist Chinese. In Shanghai, and they're, and they're reporting the sort of the imperial line on the Taiping. However, the snowballing happens because because of the failure of communication. Um, again, the first time the Taiping come to Shanghai, they get shot at, and then they go scurrying back to Nanjing. 
the second time they come to Shanghai, they're prepared for war. Um, and they, and it, it sort of things break down within the Taiping government that Hong Rengan very much is trying to, pro, trying to push for a policy of appeasement towards foreigners, giving them whatever it is they want. However, it's not possible to send a Taiping diplomat to Shanghai. They would be, ex, they would be rounded up and executed. Um, so instead, they call for foreigners to come to them. The only ones that really make the trip are, are missionaries who turn out to be, who turn out to be terrible at relaying messages back to their governments. They don't have any kind of real influence. Um, so, so at this distance of only 200 miles, things break down to the, to the point where, where Li Xiaocheng, who is the, really the true military leader of the Taiping, finally turns his back on the, on the diplomacy of Hong Rengan and just, you know, I mean, he, he tells him to his face, the foreigners love to fight, they don't love peace. How da and and so eventually they go directly toward to war with the foreigners, which is a horrible, horrible mess on both sides. Um, and one where the again the those foreigners who had been warning against this coming, by the time there are actual outbreaks of skirmishing between Taiping forces and foreign forces, there is absolutely no going back, and public opinion shifts nearly overnight once reports of those get back to England. Um, so there's a hopeful period about 1860, 1861, um, when it looks like things might actually work. Um, when the Taiping do actually take a city where foreigners are present in Ningbo, um, but for almost purely arbitrary reasons, um, the consul there basically calls for an attack to drive them out. So uh, there's there's no one exact moment, but just a snowballing of factors, miscommunications leading to military skirmishing, leading to all-out war. Yeah. Yeah. I I was struck by your uh, words about Ito Herobo's views of the natural ways of government. Are there any implications of all this for China today? Have things changed directly? It's a different China than you have today. You can ask Gordon Chang about that. (laughs) It's not my area of expertise at all. and those of you who saw my, my, my New York Times op-ed, the, uh, is, is China ripe for revolution? My answer was no, I don't think it's ripe for a revolution. Um, and uh, and the, I mean, the implications for China today with regard to sort of outbreaks of violence in the countryside, I think the government is very much aware of what can happen if, if sort of discontent in the countryside is ignored um, and let go for too long. And they're, they're doing actually a fairly good job of trying to manage it. Um, as far as are there implications for today as a, I'll put my historian hat firmly on at this point and say that I can't possibly predict the future but the memory of the past informs how people act in the present um, and that's, that's one reason why the, why the memory of the Taiping memory of this rebellion has been, um, has been difficult in China in more recent years why it is that the, you know, that the provincial museum director is still concerned about, represent, about doing an exhibit on Tsung Fan because he is still a traitor to his race for having supported the Manchus. Um, it's, I think it's, it's to glorify the Taiping today, um, I think the much readier analogy for the Communist Party is with the Qing Dynasty, not with the rebels. In the 1950s and 60s, they could say that the, the Communist Party is just like the Taiping rebels of yore. They failed. They had certain internal inconsistencies. Now, I don't think anyone would buy that analogy anymore, um, which is why the Taiping gets shunted over more towards the Falun Gong side of things, um, as sort of sectarian, crazy people sowing disorder. Um, but it, 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 uh, yes, it does absolutely have implications for China today. If it didn't, um, you would probably see lots of books about the Taiping being written every day, and there would be much more free debate about it. I think one of the reasons why we have so many books about the U.S. Civil War is nobody is afraid of it breaking out again. Some may be afraid of it. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Thank you. Many years since I graduated, yeah. <laughs> well, I have. Uh, How do you introduce yourself? Oh, I'm Heidi Poole. I work at the National Company of Young Yeah, but I did do uh, school with me. Yeah. But I never finished my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you only went to Yale Law School. <laughs> 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 I Or the um, observation of the rebellion on China today. 
but my first question is like, I, I haven't read your book, I'm really sorry. Uh, but, uh, what would be your answer to your own question? To, what would be your own answer to your question? Which question? So, the question is like, you, you started thinking about what if there were no more intervention, what if like, you just let things happen naturally, what if like, the ventures were brought down? Yeah. Okay, I, and it, then the question is, what, is the, what would it be the point of thinking of that question? When I was back in history, this actually bothered me a lot. Like, you know, what are we doing? We, can we just imagine what this has happened? And the third part would be, have you done any comparison to the Titan Revival? If you want to think what would have happened if something had not been crushed, is have you done any comparison to the Titan Revival and actually the Titan Revival, which, which actually brought down uh, the dynasty, dynasty, which actually had proven to Great questions. Um, let me let me work this. So, what if there had been no foreign intervention? Um, one thing that I felt that one one thing that I felt very strongly from this is that without foreign intervention, the Taiping would have won, or at least the Qing dynasty would have collapsed. Um, I, 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 uh, yeah. The, I mean, the, from my research, it seemed very clear that Song Wafan would not have been able to win that war without the very crucial support of foreigners from Shanghai. As to what kind of a state would it have emerged, there's absolutely no way to know. Um, the, uh, it could have been a, an orderly Taiping regime under Hong Rengan building, building, building railroads. It could have broken down into, an, into another warlord era. Uh, that was one of the things that was so ominous about Ido Hirabumi in 1909, saying that the violence is going to be all the more protracted for having been delayed so long, that perhaps there would have been a warlord era, but maybe that would have been the 1920s and 30s warlord era happening in the 1860s and 70s. Um, regardless, something would have changed. And while there were enormous strengths to the Qing in its waning years, and there, there were great efforts at reform, um, still there were such limitations um, up until the 1911 revolution. So I, I, I'm, I'm no good at, at counter histories, but I do, I do certainly believe that, that the foreign powers are to a significant degree responsible for the fact that the Qing dynasty did endure um, until the 1911 revolution. As far as what's the point of even asking? Um, it's more of a moral question than anything. Learn the lessons of the past. Because regardless of what would have come from the Taiping regime, the, the British government made its decision to intervene on completely flawed information. Um, by not believing anything that Hong Rangan said, whereas he was actually quite sincere, um, by believing that the Taiping were simply destroying everything in the area under their control, which was not happening. That was happening in the war zones, but not in the areas under their direct control. Um, and then finally, under the extremely flawed rationale um, that putting down the Taiping would get them um, better trade from the Qing dynasty and a grateful Manchu dynasty that would then give them everything they wanted, which is, and sort of the epilogue of the book is that Shanghai, the Shanghai economy crashes after the war. It turns out they were actually far better off when the rebellion was going on than afterwards. And of course, the Qing dynasty does not then suddenly become extremely pro-foreign and start granting them all kinds of things. So it's more, it's, it's more a, a lesson on foreign intervention. Um, I, I mean, in, in retrospect, they should have remained neutral. I don't think there's any, ever any question of them intervening on the side of the typing. There are a few people who called for that. Um, but they, they got their hands extremely dirty, um, and, and, and that needs to be remembered because we encounter things analogous to that constantly in terms of foreign civil wars. Um, and in terms of the comparison, I hadn't thought of, 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 of parallels with Li Zicheng, but, I, but along the way, occasionally, parallels would, uh, would crop up with the communist revolution where the U.S. did the same thing by siding with the status quo power, just picked the wrong side at that point. And if the United States had remained, had remained neutral in the Civil War in the 1945 to 49, how much of the 50s and 60s Cold War poor relations between the U.S. and China could have been avoided? Did, you know, would we have needed Nixon to go? If the, you know, would the Korean War have happened? I, maybe it would have. Obviously, there are people in this room who can answer that question much better than I can. Um, but... A similar thing going on during the, during, the, uh, during the war in China prior to this war um, in the 1940s um, with you know, reports coming back from Yan'an saying, actually, they're doing quite a good job. Um, you know, actually, these may be the side that we should work with. And then, into, then, then internal politics in the American government, Chiang Kai-shek and his madam having a better ear of American politicians. In any case, America chose to throw in its lot with Chiang Kai-shek, believing that as the former status quo ruler, he was the only one who could possibly rule China well. Um, and in that point, they weren't able to tip the balance. 
but I think uh, but an analogous kind of reasoning was behind the British decision to intervene on the side of the Qing. They hated the Qing dynasty, but they believed that they were the only power that could possibly rule in China. And one thing that I should also say here that was all, that was also surprising to me in the course of doing the research for this was that I had tended to think of the of British imperialism as being extremely confident, um, charging around the world and knocking over governments and taking over countries. Um, but one of the stronger rationales for supporting the Qing was the fear that if China collapsed, if the Qing dynasty collapsed, um, that Britain would, as its moral duty, have to colonize China. Um, and it would become the next India. And nobody wanted that. But you know, as it came up in Parliament, Earl Grey saying, you know, my lords, you're tearing down the fabric of the Chinese government with your you know, burning down the Summer Palace. Um, and as we have seen in India, it's very, easy to, it's very easy to destroy an Asiatic government and very difficult to rebuild one. And so this sort of this fear of the British having to take over China was ultimately one of the forces that propelled them to take the side of the Qing and intervene. Nick. Why did the... Introduce yourself. It's a mystery to me, though, why victorious Qing, supported by British and so forth, they did sack the summer houses. Why? And that's one of the events that keeps coming back. That's one that has a huge park where the old ruins are preserved, where Jackie Chan Why, why did the British sack the Summer Palace? Excellent question. Um, I would preface it by saying this is the very first time I've been able to meet Nicholas Platt, who, uh, who uh, for years people have asked me if I'm related to him. Um, and, and, and I've had actual material benefit um, from that. I think back, back after I'd come back from teaching in China when I was working at the America China Society in New York, I went with some friends to a film festival at the Asia Society. Um, we had ordered tickets in advance and they had lost them. And there were like eight tickets under Stephen Platt. And the woman behind the counter said, well, considering who you are. And <laughs> the tickets. Among his other accomplishments, Nick was also president of the Asian Society. Why he got in for free. So why did the British sack the Summer Palace? Well, for one thing, it comes before they support the Qing Dynasty. <laughs> Definitely. Um, this, uh, well, it's Lord Elgin who sacks the Summer Palace. Um, the uh, brother of brother of Frederick Bruce, the 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 one who becomes the British minister to China. Um, the back and forth on it. The uh, all right. I meant son of not brother. Oh yeah. Oh, the son of the Lord El the son of the Lord Elgin who who got the Elgin marbles. And he gets a lot of grief for that. You know, so the Elgin, yeah, the, you know, the Elgins are somewhat sullied in the minds of, of the liberals. Um, why did Lord Elgin sack the Summer Palace? Um, first of all, while the British remained neutral in the Chinese Civil War up until 1861, that did not mean that they were not going to they would not go to war against the Manchus themselves, independently having nothing to do with the Civil War going on in China. Um, it made a very nice window of opportunity. Um, the Qing had been had been brought to, brought low by the Taiping. They were they were concentrating on fighting them. Um, initially, it comes out of all the re trying to renegotiate, get better, uh, get more treaty ports. They haven't gotten the fortunes they had expected from the Treaty of Nanking. Um, there's this whole back and forth after the Arrow Incident, 1858. They force Lord Elgin forces his way up to Tianjin and negotiates a new treaty. They send back to England to get it ratified. His brother Frederick comes back, and then the and then the Qing Dynasty devastate the. British fleet rather than allowing them to, 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 to ratify their treaty. So the next year, 1860, when Lord Elgin comes back at the head of a mammoth fleet, a joint fleet of British and French, it's a war of revenge 
for the Qing having having turned having turned away um, his brother Frederick, um, and for refusing to ratify this treaty that was initially signed at gunpoint. Um, so Elgin has no moral leg to stand on whatsoever. But and this is the wondrous thing about 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 Lord Elgin. He's he's a gentleman. He has very little regard for the merchants who are the ones who are behind all these military actions in China. And if you look through his diaries, he loathes what's going on. He is embarrassed by by the fact that Britain has been brought to war over a smuggling ship, the Arrow. Um, he finds it shameful that he is part of the legalization of opium. Um, and by the time they fight their way all the way up to Beijing to force ratification of this treaty, um, the first thing the French do is they go and start looting the Summer Palace. And Elgin writes about how vile the French are, and you know this is a dirty business, this war, and how can they destroy such beautiful things? Um, the 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 thing that you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, Elgin's interpreter and his secretary, uh, or his interpreter, the lead negotiator, Harry Parks, um, and, 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 and Elgin's secretary um, and a handful of Sikh troops um, and others, a reporter from the Times of London, are kidnapped on, enemy, on the enemy side of the lines um, by the Manchus. Um, several of them die in, in custody. Um, Parks and the secretary are tortured. And it's after, the, it's after they have... They have you know, they've basically taken Beijing. The emperor has fled off to the north. Um, the imperial forces have melted away. Beijing is in the palm of their hands. Um, that's when the Manchus release the prisoners. And it turns out how many of them have died in captivity. And as Elgin reasons this, and he carries this to his grave, um, his officers were calling for the sacking of Beijing in retaliation, for atrocities committed against white men, basically. Um, he blamed it entirely on the emperor and he felt that the only way that the British forces could assuage the anger of the British, of the British people and avoid another round of war in reparation for this was to destroy the one thing that is associated purely with the emperor, namely the summer palace. And so in his, in his own somewhat twisted view, this is, an, this is a way of sparing the Chinese people and only punishing this emperor who rules over them as a tyrant. Um, and the wondrous thing and the ironic thing about this in terms of Chinese nationalism is now you go up to Beijing and you go to the Yuan Ming Yuan and they say for generations the Chinese people enjoyed the beautiful gardens of Yuan Ming Yuan and then along came Lord Elgin and destroyed it. Like, no, it wasn't. So, I mean, in his mind, it was very much not of the people. So rather than killing civilians, he thought this was the noble way to go. Um, but I, I wrote about this at some length in the book. Um, he's excoriated in Parliament. It's an absolute shame when the news of it gets back to England. Nobody can possibly support this. It's not just Victor Hugo writing about the, the twin bandits, England and France, going rapaciously through China, um, but from both sides of the political aisle in Parliament, um, denouncing this as being like the burning of the library at Alexandria. Elgin basically has no supporters at all except for the Prime Minister. Um, and is is really greatly humiliated by this. On top of the humiliation that was heaped on his father for the for the Elgin marbles, when the, sort of in their own view of things, they thought they were taking the only moral course. Um, what I would say, however, and this is a point that I make in the book, for all of the condemnation of the destruction of the Summer Palace, especially by Victor Hugo, who has that very famous letter, which you can read almost in its entirety as you walk in, um, none of the Western critics of Elgin's actions are criticizing him for harming China. They are all criticizing him for harming art. And the, all of the analogies that they make, that this is like destroying a library or an art museum, this is a treasure that he has ruined. Nothing about what this means for China or for the Chinese people or for the empire. We've gone over our time, but I oh. want to give one last question to Ed Rhodes, because have you read the book yet? Okay. Well, you should read it because someone that someone that Ed has written about you Young Wing is in there. Mentioned it here several times, so you get the final question. Uh, I actually have a, a comment and an unrelated question. The comment has to focus on what you've been talking a lot about, which is the change in policy, British policy towards the Taipings, and it's not being a specialist in this period. Uh, it has been my understanding that the reason why there was this change of policy on the part of the British and French was that uh, uh, they had uh, recently defeated Chiang, 
uh, and had extracted uh, some treaties uh, from from the chain, <coughs> very beneficial to the uh, to the foreign powers. And having done so, it was then in their national interest to support the, the governments that had made these concessions, whereas Taipei's had not made these concessions. So it's very, uh, very uh, it was from their, in their in their self interest. To, to now support the chain mm. uh, and, uh, against the Titans. And then the unre, uh, unrelated uh, question had to do with the, uh, and I realized that, that uh, I did read your comment, your, 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 your statement that this is not a complete history of the Titans. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then I have to say that I haven't had read the book, I've looked at the index on your formations. To uh, ask you about the racial aspect of, of the of the Taiping Rebellion, mm. uh, the uh, the uh, Taipings were against the Manchus because they were the devil, uh, and the uh, and the uh, and the uh, and then uh, when the uh, when the Qing suppressed the, the Taiping, the, uh, well, when the Taipings took over uh, many places uh, in, in China, they, they slaughtered the uh, the, uh, the Manchu garrisons. Including the one in Nanjing, yeah. uh, and then of course afterwards, when they changed the, the victorious, uh, they, they similarly slaughtered uh, the Taiping uh, forces. Anyway, uh, there is this there is this racial angle to mm-hmm. the Taiping rebellion, and I don't know whether to what extent you talk about this at all. I do, and in fact, partly inspired by you um, and by other more recent Manchu scholars of Manchus and Han who um, find that, that doing away with the old, uh, the old notion that the Manchus simply became Chinese, um, I think because that idea was so strong for so long, um, earlier studies of the Taiping Rebellion have tended to sort of discount the racial aspects of the Taiping uh, of the Taiping uh, appeals um, by saying they couldn't really have meant that much because the Chinese didn't really think of the Manchus as being different from them. Um, and I think, in light of more recent scholarship, that the, it is well worth revisiting these. And I and I, my sense going through this is that by the time they get to Jiangnan, um, the power of that Chinese versus Manchu appeal appears to be much more relevant and much stronger than any religious appeal they can come up with. Um, the Taiping religion is a very hard sell. Um, and by the time Hong Rengan takes over as prime minister, he starts putting Confucius onto the examinations, um, puts out propaganda, trying to lure scholars in. And really the central point that he tries to make in his propaganda is that this is a war for the Chinese to liberate themselves um, from the Manchus. So it's absolutely central to this rebellion. It begins nearly genocidally. Um, with the massacre of the of the of the Manchu garrison at, at Nanjing, um, by the time they're in Jiangnan, though, they soften that stance. Um, so when they when they take cities there, by the by the 1860s, they're offering to let the Manchus go, um, and they're they're and they're they're and they are indeed letting some of them go, although a lot of them still commit suicide when the city falls. Um, I don't have a, I don't know of any any Manchus that were ever lured over, um, but but certainly the. Um, the, um, there is one pro- I can't. The name escapes me, but one of the propaganda pamphlets that Hong Rengan wrote is an extended conversation between himself and a Chinese official who has come over to the Taiping, who has suddenly realized that the Manchus are different from the Chinese, and that his people have in fact been enslaved by them all along. Which sounds so much like the accounts that you get in 1909 or so of sort of young Chinese who are suddenly awakened to the fact that the Manchus are actually a different race, and that their people have been enslaved all along. So no question that the Typing, we're trying to unleash this, and 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 it, it's I believe probably their str- most their strongest appeal. That, along with the general sense that the mandate of heaven had ended for the Qing. Um, so I'd love to talk more about that with you because you start a little bit later than this period. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope you'll all join me in thanking Steve. Thank you. Thank you. And I will be happy to sign any books that any of you want to buy. Please come up and do so.